A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this next installment in our ongoing series of great Jewish American cities has been generously sponsored by an old friend who believes in Jewish History Soundbites and he's dedicating it in honor of Reb Michal Soroka Shlita in recognition of all the Avedis HaKadosh he has done for the Cincinnati Jewish community. And this is a reminder that sponsorships are available for other other cities. There are a few left, and also for regular episodes, so be in touch with me um, about sponsorships. So, tonight's um, episode of Great Jewish American Cities is about Cincinnati, Ohio. So when I first heard the suggestion to do uh, Cincinnati, so the first thing I did was something I probably never did since I started Jewish History Sounds. I took out a map to figure out where it is. And um, automatically what popped into my mind was, you know, the Big Red Machine, you know, Sparky Anderson and Pete Rose and Johnny Bench, Catfish Hunter, you know. And I'm thinking there must be some Jewish history there as well. And of course there is. And ironically, the the, ma- the main Jewish history that, popped into my head before I started to look into it, was um, also involved a non-Jew, and it's the fact that Peter is now a priest in Cincinnati, um, even though he used to be an atheist. So, So that's an important part of Jewish history as well. But in fact, there's loads of... Uh, very important and very interesting and fascinating uh, parts of Jewish history in Cincinnati. There's a lot of firsts um, of the Jewish community there, especially when we're talking about the Midwest or west of the Alleghenies. When you say west of the Alleghenies, if I'm pronouncing that mountain range correctly, it's like uh, it's like when you speak of the south, of the south of the Mason-Dixon line. So it's like, it's way out there, west of the Alleghenies, and they had the old, the first Jewish cemetery um, um, and that part of the country. The, it's the oldest Jewish community, essentially there. It's the oldest Jewish newspaper altogether in the entire country, almost in the world. Um, and there's quite a few other firsts that have the distinction of being in, 
Cincinnati. Now, it's mainly known for, and is it's, especially in its early years, was that it was the center of the reform movement, and that was due mainly to the figure of, uh, famous figure, or infamous, depends who you ask, um, of Isaac Mayer Wise, who was the undisputed, not only leader of Reform Judaism, but for a period of time of American Jewry, when uh, Reform, especially the German Reform Jews um, and Jewry and Judaism was prominent in the United States in the 19th century. So Cincinnati became the center of the movement, and um, the Jewish community there was from very old, from the early 1800s, and and uh, Isaac Mayerweise arrives there in 1853. Had been a rabbi in Albany before that. He'd come from you know uh, from Germany like everyone else during that period of time, and he was a rabbi in uh, the Plum Street Temple, which was a very impressive structure and historic building. It's still around, and he was in Cincinnati for a long time till his death in 1900 and left his uh, imprint there. And he went on a you know, massive um, initiative to build American uh, Judaism, the American Jewish community, as he saw it. He initiated the building of the Hebrew Union College, which um, is still there, still in Cincinnati, the main branch of um, ordaining Reform rabbis. It was the first uh, American, uh, first uh, institution, rabbinical institution, as such, in in America, in the United States, he he wanted, and that was one of his his goals, was he wanted a break with the German reform. Not only ideologically, uh, it was a less radical form of uh, reform Judaism, but also the fact that he felt that there was total anarchy in the American Jewish community. He wanted to organize it, and he felt that they needed to train their own rabbis and stop importing reform rabbis from Germany. We can train our own reform rabbis here. And that was the goal of the Hebrew Union College. That was also his vision His vision with the Siddur that he created, a Siddur that he created in 1857 called Minhag America. And, um, and it was actually used for many years by, some, by, by a significant amount of reform congregations in America. And his influence was through that, and he was the head of the the um, the uh, the rabbinical organization, the first American Jewish uh, rabbinical organization of Reform rabbis, and the seminary, the excuse me, the the Hebrew Union College comes later on in 1875, and that leads us to a very significant uh, event in um, in American Jewish history. At this point, the Reform is very strong. Cincinnati not only has Isaac Mayer Wise, it also has another. A reform rabbi named Max Lilienthal, whom we met in our Volusian series about his encounters with the with Russian Jewry and the Russian the Tsarist government, and he went down to Volusian to meet Rabitzel Volusianer, and that was in the 1840s when he disappears from Russia. He comes eventually to America, and he's openly a reform rabbi, which retroactively was interpreted by. Uh, Russian Jews, when they heard about it back there in Russia, about that his uh, activities in the pale of advancing the uh, government program of Haskalah was now seen in a different light, the fact that he was leading a career as a reform rabbi. So between Lilienthal and especially the influential 
Why is uh, Cincinnati becomes in an art newspaper article? Why is declared that it's the New Jerusalem? It's, this is the center of American Jewish life, and coming to Cincinnati is like coming to Jerusalem. It's the capital of the Jewish world in America, and this is the center of all uh, Judaism. So this leads us to a significant event in American Jewish history called the Trefa Banquet in 1883. There was a conference of American rabbis, and and uh, Wise was also presiding over the first graduation of the first graduating class of Hebrew College of ordaining these new rabbis. Now, Wise's goal, his main goal, besides for creating all these institutions, he also started the uh, the Israelite, the American Israelite, which was a a um, American Jewish newspaper, um, which is sort of still around, and and uh, and he wrote many, many, many articles for it. He's a very active uh, individual, very busy, very always with new projects. But his main goal was to unify American Jewry, and therefore his, like I said, he was less radical than the German reform. He he wanted all American rabbis to work together, including the more traditional ones, including the more orthodox ones. And he wanted there to be unity in the American Jewish community. And here in 1883, by this banquet, he invited everyone, and all the rabbis came. And all the rabbis, even the more traditional rabbis, came. And it was a high point of uh, American unity, probably the last time it happened, and uh, as well as we'll see why, because on the menu, they started, they served uh, uh, seafood, shellfish, clams, and other things. They served frogs legs, and then they served ice cream for dessert, and so they had all kinds of meat dishes, a very fancy affair, and a fancy venue, and fancy food, um, and uh, likely that the meat wasn't kosher either. Um, so what happened? And it became a big scandal. And uh, so there are all kinds of legends attached to it because subsequent events eventually this led to the break uh, breaking of the unity within the American Jewish community. It led to, on one hand, the radicalization of the of Reform Judaism. Wise until that point, you know, he himself kept a somewhat kosher home. His wife was pretty traditional, and he and Wise himself was fighting the radical reformers like David Einhorn and others in America up until that point in the name of unity. At this point, he already bows to the radical reform. He refuses to apologize. Unity is abandoned. Reform becomes the establishment. And, and uh, in 1885, there's the Pittsburgh Platform, which is proclaimed as the official platform of Reform Judaism in America, which was a pretty radical uh, um, declaration, which perhaps we'll get into another time. And and uh, two years later, in 1887, the seminary is founded, the Jewish Theological Seminary, the Conservative Judaism. This paves the way for Conservative Judaism. Conservative Judaism, it's hard to believe today, but it was but it was created and formulated as a reaction to the Trefa banquet, as a reaction to the reform in America, and it was and like as its name, conservative. It was there to conserve Judaism to keep it more traditional, to keep it more according to the halacha. And that's why they founded the seminary, in opposition to the Hebrew Union College. And that break happens because of the Trefa Banquet. Now, 
In some accounts, especially by a student of Wise, who was one of the graduating rabbis, David Phillipson, he wrote, he made it very dramatic that people left and they ran out in protests and they were, and they, there was, it was like kind of disturbed the whole affair. And then, then there was a whole polemical writing back and forth in the Jewish uh, newspapers afterwards. It seems that it wasn't as dramatic as uh, as people remembered it to be afterwards, and because it was seen as the symbolic break between reform and what later became conservative Judaism, so it was dramatized in in uh, in uh, in an anachronistic way. But um, but it was but it was at the time it seemed to have been more subtle. Uh, there were already signs of of uh, the traditionalists breaking away from Wise and not accepting his his platforms and his ideas and his vision of American Judaism. And the seminary probably would have been set up in any event. And the Trefa banquet only served as a catalyst. So that that's the that's the context of the um of the Trefa banquet. Now what happened and you know you know Lilienthal himself was gone by then, but uh, Wise was stayed around for quite a bit of time, and um, interestingly enough, at the same time as Wise and Lilienthal, and it's the center of reform, there was one of the few strongly Orthodox rabbis in America. Also, ends up in Cincinnati. There was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Bernard, or Rabbi Sacher Dave Lovi, who was a student of the Chassam Seifer. And he learned by the Chassam Seifer in Preshburg. And he, and he also had a, college, a doctorate. He had a university degree. And he was a fighter of, against reform uh, Judaism. And he eventually, in, back in Germany, and he eventually makes it to the United States. And he um, was a very fiery individual. He never was one to back down. And therefore he kept on having to move around from one rabbinical position to the other. Um, he was in several places, Philadelphia, New York, and Baltimore. He eventually ended up in New Orleans, and he's in New Orleans during the Civil War, and where and uh, he supported secession. He said the states should have a right to secede. He even uh, supported their right to own slaves. And it was during the Civil War that he had his most successful endeavor in promoting Yiddishkeit. He... He um, he was a fighter for Yiddishkeit, and he wrote a lot in in the Occident and other uh, newspapers. He also submitted articles in German into uh, into Jeshurun of Rambamshinfal Hirsch's newspaper back in Frankfurt, and to, and to Marcus Le, uh, Lehman's uh, newspaper, uh, the Israelit in in Mainz. And but he, he write he, he wrote a lot. He was a very prolific writer. Wrote quite a bit. And uh, most of it was his attacks on reform and trying to uphold tradition. During his years in New Orleans, he um, he was very successful in uh, for a period of time in Kashras, Shabbos observance. He, his son commented that when his father arrived in New Orleans, there was not a single sukkah uh, built in the entire city. But uh, when he left New Orleans just a few years later, there were quite a few. Um, and... Uh, and in in fact, uh, once you mentioned Sukkis, so the Union uh, made a naval blockade on the Confederacy during the Civil War, so they were unable to bring in a Sreigim from the the West Indies. 
which is where they used to bring it in from, from the islands, from the tropical islands. And any, any uh, citrus fruit that was brought to him from the southern states that he did not, uh, he, he didn't see that uh, that was a kosher estrig. So during the Civil War, the New Orleans Jewish community under the Psak of Rabbi Sacher Dayev Lowy did not, uh, were not, were not able to shake the Daladmina because of the Union naval blockade. Maybe that's why he supported the South. He, uh, also paskined on a duck that I never heard of, the Muscovy duck, that it's not kosher. And this was even quoted recently as a precedent that till today, this is not considered a kosher duck. And he, goes after the Civil War, he moves to Cincinnati to take up a rabbinical position. So of all places, this great fighter for tradition and against reform, and he invests in a Jewish education wherever he went, and he writes against them. He ends up in the center of Reform Judaism, where Lilienthal and Wise were. And they and they and they had, you know, they had it out. They they they, they disagreed on many issues. Now, a couple of years later in 1871 he passes away and ironically um, Wise and Lilienthal gave a hespit at his Levaya, which is which is quite interesting. And he 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 was um, Rabbi Lowy was cynical about the future of American Jewish life. He wrote once that there's 200 Jewish congregations in America, but there's only a handful of rabbis, and most of them are students of Bilam, Bilam Harasha. And, uh, and he's one of the only ones who's standing up for tradition. Um, but besides for reform and, and the beginnings of orthodoxy, so Cincinnati is also the home in those years to the beginnings of kosher food in America. Manischewitz, which till today is a, famous, a classic American Jewish food company, is one of the first ones to develop kosher products in America, the first ones to market it and genuinely kosher, and innovative and creative products, was started by a Litvak, Rabdoiv Ber Manischewitz. In 1888, he founds the company. The first product he makes is machine matzah. Machine matzah was still a novelty in those days. It was definitely the first machine matzahs, or kosher machine matzahs, made in America. And this, this uh, Litvish guy, he starts the Manischewitz company, it eventually develops, eventually moves to the East Coast, but for many, many years... It's factories, and and uh, the whole company was run from uh, Cincinnati. Interesting note is that um, is that the Mir Yeshiva, when they were in in uh, Kobe, Japan, so they were there for Pesach. So the Varat Solo was able to get them um, machine uh, Manischewitz machine masses. In fact, uh, someone told me once that he was speaking to an Altamirer who was in Kobe, Japan. And he asked him, well, you were there for Pesach, how did you get matzahs? He said, what do you mean? We got machine matzahs, uh, uh, excuse me, Manischewitz machine matzahs were sent to us by the Var Hatzala, um when we were in, in Japan. So this fellow who lives in the 21st century and gets the obviously the most mahudar and kosher matzahs from the best bakery and the best chabura, so he made like a face to this altamir. He's like, you ate Manischewitz matzahs? And he said to him, "You're you're you're happy with your matzahs, as you're you know you don't mind you don't mind writing off hundreds and hundreds of Jews who because of the situation that they were in you you can look down at them for eating Manischewitz matzahs as long as you have your kosher matzahs and that is the inappropriate uh, approach and attitude uh, to be you know 
to, to look at it that way. So that was a lesson that he learned from the Alta Mirror. But what I, what I found interesting about that story is that who is the Varatzala? So of course it was Ravram Kalmanovich who was taking personal care of the mirror, but the one who was overseeing the Varatzala, which is someone who we'll get to in a second, was Reblazer Silver, the legendary Reblazer Silver. And he is the rabbi in Cincinnati, and he sends them the Manashevitz Matzes, which originally was from Cincinnati also. Now, um, one of his sons, he sent to learn in yeshivas in Israel. he learned in the, in the uh, Hebron yeshiva and other places, and he comes back to America, becomes the head of um, of the uh, Manashevitz company, Hirsch Manashevitz, and he died quite dramatically and suddenly during Kol Nidre in 1941. Um, but another uh, company that also had its origins even earlier than Manashevitz was Fleischmann's Yeast, which till today is used. And that was started by a Hungarian Jew named Charles Fleischmann, and... Um, and that was also started in Cincinnati in 1868, and they eventually also moved into other pro- other products, kosher yeast and other kosher foods. So you had Fleischmann's and Manischewitz, which I also found ironic because the Litvak starts the company with dry matzah, but the one who lets that matzah rise and become tasty and yummy with his yeast is the Hungarian Jew. So that's also a bit symbolic. Now. Orthodoxy is, uh, uh, is on the rise in in Cincinnati, and one of the lesser-known rabbinical figures is a rabbi named Ravram Gershon Lesser. And he was born and studied in the Mir Yeshiva. He was born in the town and studied at the Mir Yeshiva. And then later he also studied in Minsk by Gershon Tanchum of Minsk in the famous Yeshiva called Blumke's Kloys. And he comes to America... One of the earliest, almost one of the earliest prominent rabbis, especially a prominent rabbinical figure from Lithuania, in 1882, right at the beginning of the Great Immigration. And he's one of the founders of the Agudas Rabbanim in 1902. He was a rabbi in Chicago, later in Cincinnati. He was, um, in 1898, he becomes the rabbi in Cincinnati. He dies in 1924, so it's quite a bit of time, and had a major influence in the town. Um, and during that time, there was the first that we know of. There might have been one earlier, but definitely one of the first, possibly even the very first uh, fundraiser uh, for a yeshiva in Eastern Europe, not surprisingly for the Mir Yeshiva, in 1891, being that the rabbi of the... Actually, he wasn't the rabbi there yet, but but um, it's still not surprising that it was the Mir Yeshiva. But um, in 1891, there was a fundraiser for the Mir in Cincinnati, which was not very successful, um, the townspeople were not so happy about it. Keep in mind that Wise was still alive um, in 1891, so it was still very much the center of reform. So um, the, the what became famous later as the fundraisers for yeshivas in Europe, the first one, uh, Cincinnati also has that distinction. Now, when, um, when Ram Gershon Lesser passes on in 1924, he succeeded by a fellow by the name of Rebetzal Epstein. Rebetzal Epstein was the Rav in that shul where he was, and he was his successor, and he felt that uh, he was the the uh, Rav of Cincinnati. So when a few years later, Reblazer Silver came along and started organizing things and creates the Vad Ha'ir to oversee all the kosherists and the 23 kosher butchers. Imagine 23 kosher butchers in the 1920s in Cincinnati. And Sir Betzal Epstein was not so excited about it. Sir Blazer Silver 
and the Rebetzal Epstein did not see eye to eye. So you had these two prominent Litvisher rabbis in the town during that time when the uh, Jewish community was booming. So, of course, it brings us to a blazer silver, um, someone who really deserves his own episode, um, and we'll probably have to get to him one day, but just in the context of Cincinnati, he's someone who made a name for himself in Ohio. He got a very close relationship with the senator, the son of the former president, um, pre- son of President Taft, so Senator Robert Taft, who was uh, head of the Republican Party, and he, and Blazer Silver was the, uh, he arrives in America in 1907, and he was a rabbi in a bunch of different places, in Harrisburg, and Massachusetts, and he eventually comes to Cincinnati in around 1930, 1931, and he's by then one of the heads of the Agudas Rabbanim, because he called himself, and he was a very funny uh, uh, rabbi, and a lot of witty uh, uh, remarks, which he became legendary for, and he called himself the chief rabbi of America and Canada. Um, and he was the head of the Agudas Rabbanim, he's the founder of the Ezra's Torah Fund to help Torah scholars back in Eastern Europe, he was the founder of Agudas Yisrael of America. He was the founder of a day school in Cincinnati, which was one of the early day schools. He ran the Vad Ha'ir and the Kashris in Cincinnati. He founded the Vad Hatzala, which was the organization founded in, uh, in the beginning of the war to save uh, yeshiva students in uh, in Eastern Europe. He had a very enjoyed a very close relationship with Reb Chaim Grzynski, who was the his his rebbe and who was who guided him in a lot of uh, in a lot of his endeavors in the United States. He had a very funny personality. He's very famous during his Vadat Sala time of all the activities that he did in, at the end of the war when he wanted to visit the survivors uh, in the displaced persons camps in Germany. He got permission from the United States Army to military to wear an army uniform. So here you have this rabbi wearing an army uniform without any rank on it. And there's all types of stories that some of them are legends, some of them actually happened, some of them may have happened, and fits his personality about these witticisms that he said that he was stopped at a checkpoint and he didn't return a salute, and he, he was stopped, and they said, oh, why don't you place a long-distance call to, to Senator Taft from Ohio, and he'll tell you exactly who I am, and you're stopping the chief rabbi here. And uh, and um, he, he he brought money from the Vadat Sala, cash, hard currency, to distribute to these desperate survivors, which was essentially smuggling uh, contraband at the time, so he had ways of getting through checkpoints by uh, by you know hiding his, his the money. Also, um, he tried to search for Jewish children who were hidden in monasteries in Western Europe. He he would go in and and uh, and he they had to allow him in. He was wearing an American army uniform, so they had to allow him in. So he would say. Shema and uh, and he any children who would finish off the pasuk of Shema, he would he would rescue them and he would you know that was his way of discovering that they were Jewish because very often these Jewish children were uh, dis- deposited there when they were very young when they were babies two three years old they didn't remember their identity they didn't remember their parents who were now gone and this was his way of taking them out that story is said by about a, quite a few rabbis who were involved in these activities of trying to get children out. Most famously with Rav Herzog, so the story is likely to have happened with Rav Herzog, unless two great uh, rabbis both thought of the same tactic of getting children out, which is also likely, so maybe they both did it. There's another story, I don't think I've ever said a Rav Pesach Kron story on Jewish History Soundbites, so it's about time, 
that uh, that is that he also said when when he when Revlazer Silver was there, um, and uh, he um, he uh, he encountered in the DP camp he encountered a survivor who told him that he doesn't want to have anything to do with the Jewish people anymore. So he said that's sad and unfortunate. Why is that the case? He said when one of the camps I was in, um, there was a Jew who smuggled in a page of a sitter. And he demanded that anyone who wanted to use to pray from his sitter would have to give him their day, that day's rations and their starvation rations, as it was almost impossible to survive. And here he's demanding from everyone that they give up their rations. So Blazer Silva said, I understand you. I'm, I'm sorry that you experienced this cruelty, that this person demanded the bread, the daily bread of other Jews just for the opportunity to use a page of a sitter. And the guy said, well, that's it. I don't want to have anything more to do with the Jewish people. And as he's walking away, Blazer Silver says to him, let me ask you something. Did anyone actually give their bread, their only crust of bread that they had, their rations that they received from the Nazi guards? Did anyone actually give up their bread to for the opportunity to daven from the sitter? So the guy says, sure, loads of people did. There was a long line waiting for people to do that every day. So Blazer Silver says to him, just an idea to think about why are you looking at one person who may have behaved incorrectly and inappropriately, and you know you never know the situation that he was in also in in the, in the camp, but don't look at why don't you look at all the people who were willing to give up the bread that they had in order to be able to daven, and that could change a perspective. That person rethought his relationship with the Jewish people, and he decided to maintain and become a proud member, or return to being a proud member of the Jewish people. And that, 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 and that fellow was Simon Wiesenthal, who played a major role in, uh, in Jewish history as well, and that's also to credit to Reblazer Silver. Now, Reblazer Silver's activities are very involved in, uh, in Jewish education in uh, Cincinnati. Um, like I said, he, he founded the day school there. His shul was called Knesset Yisrael on the Yom Leiroyim. It fit... Uh, between 350 to 400 people davened there. They had several minyanim there every single day. Reblazer Silver himself davened in the 730 minyan. He gave a daily Gemara shir, but like you could imagine someone like this who was running everything that was going on in America. So he was very busy. He was very often out of town. In fact, they eventually had to bring in an assistant, Reblazer Potashnik, to to replace Reblazer Silver when he was out of town and uh, busy with, uh, with, um, with the Jewish community at the national level. But before that, when he was out of town and he couldn't give his daily Gemara shir, so there were Balabatim in Cincinnati at the time who had who were alumni of the Valajin Yeshiva, who were alumni of the Mir Yeshiva, who had, you know, came with the great immigration to America, settled in Cincinnati, and they're very capable individuals, and they gave the Gemara shir. So you had people like that living in Cincinnati uh, as well. Now... There, there was a parking lot outside the Knesset Israel Shul for horses, which I imagine was common in most shuls. I never thought about it, but I just saw it by, uh, by, by this shul, so I thought that was, you know, a parking lot for horses. There was 23 kosher butchers I mentioned, and that Reblazer Silver, uh, was in charge of the kashrus of. There were quite a few other Orthodox shuls at the time, already from the 19th century, even though it was known for reform, but there were other a bunch of other shuls, Avas Achim, Adas Yisrael, all from the uh, 1840s and 1850s, Sha'iris Yisrael. Some of these shuls had schools attached to them. 
um, one of these shuls sent a shaila to the Nitziv in Valazhin about how to do a proper Hachnasa uh, Sefer Torah for a new Sefer Torah that they were writing. I'm not sure the exact uh, halachic ramifications of the tshuva, but um, the Orthodox Jewish life was quite active. And in fact, the Blazer Silver sent a, a when he started the Avad Hatzala, he sent a, a confidant of his who was only nominally traditional until that time to be the first representative of the Avad Hatzala in Eastern Europe. He was a fellow by the name of Dr. Samuel Schmidt, who was born in Kovna, he was born in Lithuania. He came to America quite young. He graduated from MIT. He had a doctorate. He was traditional but not religious. He was a big Zionist activist. He spent time in Palestine. He was involved in all types of Zionist organizations. He also worked for the Joint. And then Erlazer Silver commandeers him into the Vadat Salah. And he meets Reb Chaim Eiser. He goes there during the first months of the war. He actually goes there and he meets Reb Chaim Eiser. Reb Chaim Eiser says, what's your name? Is Dr. Samuel Schmidt. And Reb Chaim Eiser says, I want to call you if you give me permission, I want to call you Reb Shmuel. He said, Reb Shmuel, I'm not even religious. Reb Chaim said, you left America, the comfort of your life, to come to a war zone just to help us. That's Reb Shmuel for me. And that encounter with Reb Chaim really had, it made a very strong impression on him and being Reb Leza Silver's uh, shliach, uh, messenger, emissary, for the Vadat Salah, eventually brought him closer to religion. He was the editor of a newspaper in Cincinnati, the the uh, something Friday or another, and um, he was involved in the day school afterwards. He started a, a Orthodox old age home, and in fact, he was being honored at a dinner of the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, um, in his later years, and he died at the dinner. Another, another dramatic death. Now, during this time, another individual pops up in Cincinnati, uh, Abraham J. Heschel. Heschel talking about Abraham J. Heschel's, Avram Yeshua Heschel's. So you can't get a better uh, Hasidic pedigree than that. He's named after the Aptarov and a direct descendant of his. And he's part of the Hasidic aristocracy of Warsaw, where he grew up and basically related to every Polish Rebbe out there. He was next in line to be a Rebbe by one of the smaller courts of Warsaw. And he eventually went in a different direction. He goes to university in Berlin. He never got German citizenship, so eventually in 1938 he has to go back to Poland. He teaches in Warsaw, and he was a philosopher and, and, and a thinker and a brilliant man. Interesting, had an interesting way of thinking. Also deserves his own uh, episode one day. We'll have to get to him. And um, and literally, um, you know, he's a refugee essentially. He had to leave Germany and go back to Poland. Um, literally a couple of weeks before the war breaks out. The war breaks out of September 1st, 1939. We're talking about middle of August 1939. He gets out at the last second. He get a visa sponsored by the Hebrew Union College. The Hebrew Union College sponsored several visas for individuals. So he comes to America and he's, you know, still a religious Jew. He was an interesting religious Jew. He definitely traditional, definitely kept most of a traditional Jewish life. He definitely was not reform. He had an interesting way of thinking. He was a different kind of guy, but he was definitely religious. And here he is, his visa sponsored by Hebrew Union College. So he shows up to Cincinnati. He lives there for a bunch of years. And, um, and he gets a salary there and free meals at the campus, but he didn't eat at the campus because the food wasn't kosher, and he kept kosher. He didn't even want to daven there. He would either daven in his dorm room or he would daven at Knesset Yisrael by Blazer Silver. And he became close to the Blazer Silver. 
And the only time he actually went to the Hebrew Union College campus was that he wanted to put it in Cherem because he believed that the Reform way was incorrect. So Heschel, you know, interesting individual, someone who's tried to straddle all worlds. He even joined Blazer Silver on his famous the Rabbi's March to Washington at the end of 1943. Um, probably the only representative of Hebrew Union College at the Rabbi's March was Abraham J. Heschel. Um, it was not the only time he watched, he marched in Washington. Uh, so many years later, he marched in Washington again with Martin Luther King. So he was a big marcher in Washington. He was a big activist in the civil rights movement, but that's for another story. He stayed in Cincinnati till the end of the war, and then he joins the seminary, the Jewish Theological Seminary. Now, it's impossible to talk about a place that's, like I said, like I started off with, that this was the home to the big red machine. You have to say something about baseball. So there is a connection of Jews and baseball in Cincinnati. The first Jewish baseball player was a fellow by the name of Lippmann Pike. Now, Lippmann Pike, he, of course, since he was Jewish, so he lived in Brooklyn, but he did play for Cincinnati. Now, we know the Cincinnati uh, Reds were the first professional team, and he played for... Uh, for, the, for them for a short period of time. Um, big home run player, a hitter, which in the dead ball era was quite uncommon. You're talking about he played um, in 1877, really a long time ago. Um, and, he, and he was one of the first professional players. He only lasted a short time in Cincinnati because he was considered a foreigner, because he was from New York. So they sent him packing after a short period of time. But um, but he was considered a legend as one of the first uh, baseball superstars, and and uh, and and even though he didn't make it into the to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, but of the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in Atania, Israel, he was inducted in 1985. At the opposite end of the spectrum, the owner of the Reds in the 90s was a woman by the name of Marge Schott, and she was known as a bit of a Nazi sympathizer. She you know, used to praise Hitler, and she was a racist against Jews, against Asians, against blacks, and ML the and Major League Baseball banned her from 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 her position as owner of the uh, of the Reds, active owner for the Reds during the nineties because of all these slurs that she made in support of Hitler. So so that that happened in Cincinnati as well. And if we would want to wrap it up, once we did. The reform and orthodoxy and baseball, and we also could throw in pop culture, because why not? Because none other than Steven Spielberg was born in Cincinnati, which brings me to another another personality, which we'll end off with. Gee, you can't make these stuff up. A fellow by the name of Frederick Ziv um, was a major TV producer and considered a TV pioneer and a successful guy. And it's just a funny last name, Ziv. Okay, so he's Jewish, but Ziv is a famous Jewish name. The altar of Kelm was Reb Simcha Zissel Ziv. So I looked it up, and it turns out that Frederick Ziv's parents were immigrants from Lithuania, from which town in Lithuania? From Kelm. So here you have most likely a relative of the altar of Kelm who makes it to Cincinnati and becomes a uh, TV pioneer. So that's just a, a little bit of a taste of uh, the great Jewish history of Cincinnati, Ohio. This was uh, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, and sources, and tours and trips to places of interest to Jewish history. Check out the 
Jews You Should Know podcast of Ari Koretsky. Uh, he um, will be a, posting an interview with me um, very shortly. So that's just a little bit of a spoiler as well. So you could check that out. And uh, in any of his interviews, he has much better people that he interviewed, and he's a great interviewer, so you should check him out as well. And um, you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites um, on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.